All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bits and Bites. Uh, this is Sam, not Gene here. Gene had to step away for a minute, so I'm playing a relief pitcher today. But the show must go on. Um, and we have a pretty special guest. We say all our guests are special. And then we say you're extra special, Adam. Um, just to buff every speaker up, right? But uh, oh, we're joined my by it's Adam. Yeah, it's already working. We're joined by Adam O'Donnell um, of Zendesk. Uh, do you want to just explain a little bit about your role at Zendesk? And you have your your tagline is is long, so I want to read it properly. But let's start with Zendesk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so I'm Adam O'Donnell. I work for Zendesk, um, running North American part start, startup partnerships. So I the the sub organization under Zendesk is Zendesk for startups. It's our startup initiatives, working with some trying to help some of the best companies in the world, the best founders in the world. Uh, but I'm based here in San Francisco. For sure. And and that's why we're talking is not because I had a huge complaint through Zendesk and and that's how we met. <laughs> That's so good, but I'd take that. I would take that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Adam, on top of that, you're also the main host at a podcast called The Top VC. What's that about? I, That's I right. Guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, honestly, I've, I've been an entrepreneur before, two-time founder. One failed and one had a soft landing. It was a meaningful enough exit for me and then joined a venture capital fund. And my biggest misconceptions around funding were just like tremendous. And so for me, I started that podcast to, to break down and bridge the gap between what it really means to close around what VCs are actually looking for. And I do that by interviewing some of the top VCs in Silicon Valley and throughout the world, as well as some of the top founders who've raised a lot. I was speaking to the CEO of Dooley, who's I think based in your area, but the, mm -hmm. he, he's raised 105 million. I did an episode with him last week. So we have people on both sides talking about, you know, unconventional strategies and tactics, like to get that round oversubscribed by the best VCs possible. That was a uh, Chris, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Chris. Chris was uh, recently on our our uh, sister podcast, Founder Stories. Um, so free plug for me if you if you're listening to this and you want to learn about Founder Stories, go check out Founder Stories, um, our podcast. You can find all that on launchacademy.ca. Um, but that's where we specifically want to talk to to founders and and well, it's in the name. So I think you guys are getting really good with those uh those podcast names. You learn their founder stories. <laughs> and so that, good, good. Yeah, that's hosted by our CEO, Ray Walia. Um, so so let's make sure you're you're checking that out as well, as well as, of course, the top VC. But um, I'm really excited and you can kind of tell that I'm kind of raring to get going because like, I think I want to make the most out of our, our time here. And there's so many stories that, that we can kind of go through. Um, but um, I, I want to start here because because I think you you dipped into it and I think you thought I wouldn't catch it, but I definitely did. Like when you started talking about like how you started in startups, you'd had two startups, one failed. Right. And then one, obviously you, you exited as well, but you always, I, I've seen you introduce yourself that a couple of times that way. You always start with the one that failed. Um, so can you maybe, maybe just as a background, describe like, what were those two things you built? What was the one that successfully went through? What does success mean? Um, and what about the one that failed? What, why do you consider that a failure? That's so good. And I, there's, I, I love your attention to detail there. So for me, it, it was an incredible learning opportunity for, for both companies. Um, the, the one that failed was called buzz report. And so the, the learning, the, the thing that the, my, I mean, I want, I just want to be able to like understand 
I think we can learn almost more from the failures than we can from the successes. Cause I got Absolutely. really arrogant, right. With, with the, um, the success that I had actually before that. And it was, you know, once again, it was not, I'm not saying it was like a, a massive exit in terms of on the scale that you would see in Silicon Valley, but it was meaningful enough for me to be able to move out to San Francisco and, and start another company. So it was, it was a really cool event. That was the first company called last uh, that I sold, uh, the, the company is called tech track. The first one that I had the successful exit with, and it was merged and the shares were sold to a company called lasso.io, uh, which is still around. So that was just a really cool experience. I was young and I was like, oh my gosh, I figured it all out. Then I go and try it again and didn't have the same experience. Super hard for me, just like straight up. And I think just being able to talk about that is really powerful because the more people I meet in Silicon Valley, the more you realize that everyone's had some kind of failure and, and failure, you know, I, I want to say it on both sides because people say like, oh, fail fast, all those things fail, fail, fail. And we'd like to say that it's not that bad of a thing. And it's not necessarily a bad or good thing. It's more of a like we're ultimately still trying to succeed. Like we don't want to take money and waste money. We're still trying to be successful. So the idea of failing is more just like, hey, let's be testing often and learn from those tests all the time. So ultimately though, the second company did not work. And I learned a lot, you know, along that way. And I learned a lot of things that didn't work. And I learned a lot of things that actually worked out well for me in the first that were, uh, that were things outside my control. I mean, it was very humbling, which was, a great experience. But my biggest takeaway is um, if you do, if you focus on the core things of the business, then you're not, you're not guaranteed to have a successful business every time, like period, but you're in, you'll increase the likelihood of succeeding. And that for me has always been understanding your customers at a level deeper than they understand themselves. And you do that through a lot of different methods, which we can talk about. But if you do that consistently enough, it's all, it's just basically about, can you stay in the game long enough? financially and mm -hmm. you're you're gonna you'll be able to to figure it out from there and sometimes ending the game which i chose to do uh, mm -hmm. with the second company at that time that we did was the right decision to go and learn from other people and that's when i joined a venture capital fund um based here in silicon valley it's a the fund is called mighty capital and they uh, had invested in airbnb and amplitude and some other great uh companies and just was able to learn an incredible amount. And I, and I would argue that if I do want to ever go a startup again, that experience actually accelerated my learning than if I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing mm -hmm. on that company. So there is a component of choosing to end a company mm -hmm. is almost just as important as continuing to go. And the problem is podcasts like this, we all say, Hey, keep going, keep going, keep going, because mm -hmm. that's, you know, right before the breakthrough, but there are times where it's like, Hey, stop. This is not, yeah. don't, don't keep wasting your money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if, if you're good with it, I'm happy to kind of expand on that a little bit. Um, so so I want to kind of paint that picture for for listeners um, time. So you talk about buzz report, this is after you've sold your first company, you've moved up to the valley, you're you've made it you're in the Mecca of startups or whatever. Um, how long did you actually spend on buzz? What? Okay, what was it? And and how long did you spend on it? Yeah, so it's it's a funny question to really determine the exact because it was so many different iterations that happened because we had something going and then we just kept iterating and iterating when it wasn't working. So it was like, I'm never going to end this thing. That was my mindset. So I like tried, we tried different markets, different, like different versions of the product, even like completely different businesses and iterated around that. Cause that's what all the knowledge is telling you in Silicon Valley. And I still think that there's some good to that, but the, here's the, the long and short of, of that experience. We, the, in the beginning we hit, we were able to sign up, a million ARR in six months. 
And we started the product only three wow. months before that. We signed up a lot of those customers before we even had a product. This was like the big win of that experience. And I'll tell you why it ended up failing in the end. But um, I, I think that the process is still valid because the reason it, it didn't work was outside of our control. And I'll share that. And it's actually pretty legitimate. It's happened to a lot of companies. But we, we picked an industry vertical. We picked higher education. And so we were, this was not a sexy industry, which we picked, you know, intentionally we had some proximity around that. So I understood those people and uh, were already in that network with a previous company. So I was like, okay, let's just pick this, like all the people in the world aren't coming after this industry. So uh, we, we, we picked it and we picked a persona in, in, the, in the university. The, the persona that we picked was the head of business services at any university. And these people can be in charge of, you know, 50, up to 50 to even $100 million budgets at a university. So they're frequently overlooked in terms of their buying power. So we, we figured out that they had a conference that they all went to. They're all really close friends. And so we said, let's get in that conference. Let's start at the very top. Who's, who's on the board of that conference? Let's become friends with them. Let's go to the conference. Let's invest the money to go there. And then we built relationships with those people. And then over the next month, we used those relationships to get introduced throughout the whole organization. And during our research, we were able to ask consistent questions to them. So examples of the questions that we were asking were around, it was really like three components of the question. And uh, it, do, it doesn't always work linearly like this, but this is like essentially what we were trying to figure out is what, what does success look like for you and your job? What's the hardest part about achieving that success? And then finally, how are you actively paying to solve that problem in your role? So by doing that, we were able to understand, we're, since we're interviewing all the same types of people, we're able to understand, okay, cool. We, we can see patterns emerging pretty quickly. And when you're tracking all your interviews, we are doing Google Sheets at the time, but doing it in Airtable, super clean. You can get incredible data on like, wow, we have a similar type of people who are all, all struggling with this same kind of thing. And oh, the, the, here's some similarities in their organization. Maybe for universities, they're you know, over 10,000 students. So, so a larger mid-sized university, business officer is struggling with this specific type of thing. And that was able, that, that was just like incredible. And then also not just struggling with it, but they're paying to solve it. And if you're not paying to solve, sometimes, you know, it can just be your time, but if they don't have that component, then ignore it. We would ignore it completely. If they're like, Hey, this is a huge problem for me. Like, great. How are you actively paying to solve it? And they don't have an answer. Great. What's the next biggest thing that you're actively trying to solve? How are you spending money on it? And that is the key to, that was the difference between a lot of failed things that didn't work for us and the ones that did. So we eventually created this, we learned that they had a problem understanding what students were saying on social media at the time and um, ab about their, their programs. And this would blow up. This would create a real emotional pain for them because like the president of the university would hear about a, a blow up on social media. And then they would email them and say, what is this? Or a parent outside the organization would say, how come my student's not getting addressed because they mentioned this? Or maybe there was like a comment about suicide and they missed it and one of their students said it. So it was very emotional to them because they're like, oh my gosh, like I could lose my job. This could be really bad. So they're, they're paying consultants to try to help scan social media. They're hiring people 
to just start looking at social media, like they're doing all these things. And so we said, wait, what if we just aggregated it all in a, in a really custom way? There, those, there's a lot of great companies that were doing something similar, but they hadn't focused on this use case, like Hootsuite, Sprout Social, all that was existent. But we figured out these people better than anyone else in the world and were able to get started. And we had them sign, we had big universities all around the country and even in Canada signing up for a year contract before we built the system. So <laughs> it was it was pretty cool. I'm just sharing the story because it, we we just had incredible success in getting to the million mm-hmm. ARR signed up and all that. The long and short though, we ended up it ended up failing because our data sources got closed off to us, and we were scanning you know the popular ones, Instagram, uh, uh, Facebook, Yik Yak was around at the time, and those as those got closed off from us on a legal perspective, it completely changed our ability to deliver value to our customers. So. It, the process wasn't flawed, but you know you got to look at all the surrounding, and you don't want to be building a business on something where a couple sources could change your whole business. <laughs> yeah, and I and I do remember like this is this is a very long time ago, but when Hootsuite just started, and this was. 2011 2012 and there was this whole concept of like okay well you're basing it all on twitter that's what it was originally on by the way um and it was like okay well what if twitter changes their api what if twitter pulls the rug from underneath you like why would i invest in a company that's just built on another platform right um and so i mean obviously they did it and they've done well and you know they're one of vancouver's success stories in terms of startups right but but those are those are definitely things to to keep in mind especially i think there's a lot of people building on tiktok right now right? Same idea. You got to make sure you do it right. That's so good. And VCs have gotten burned on this. So they're definitely like, uh, I know at Mighty Capital without saying any details on which company, there was a burn situation on that. So like it, the VCs are aware of this and we all need to be aware of it. It's not something that you can just like, the problem is those kind of categorical outside your control things, like you could never forecast all of those, but at least you can learn from the ones that you've already seen. For sure. For sure. And, and so kind of, so how long did that take in the first year you guys, you know, hustled real hard. You went through the whole 1 million ARR thing. How long before you start to see cracks in the armor? Ha. Uh, the, so the, the cracks were on the exterior side and we could see the writing on the wall. Um, we could see that it was getting hard for us to source the data. We could see that, you know, just, that they were potentially going to be closing things down. And so that was what really put it for us. So we were like, we got to, we got to figure out other things to be doing mm-hmm. and we'll keep the customers that we already have and we'll do the best we can. But we, we just, we couldn't think of a good solution to stay uh, to, to fi- like to, to iterate on that. I mean, we, we looked at, you know, building like a next level Hootsuite as an example of like a tangential job, like, Hey, we'll just try to be like a social media all encompassing thing, that kind of stuff. But the thing that um, got me was, was this, we did, once we saw this writing on the wall, we did extensive research with our customers and we were paying them like up to, you know, 50 to a hundred dollars to, to be on a 45 minute call with us. And this call was super structured. We studied this one process called switch interviews. And the whole point was we wanted to understand them at the deepest level now that we had acquired them to see how we could iterate out of this situation, knowing that the way that we're solving our pro- their problem now, we're most likely not going to be able to do it. So the just to give a quick overview on the, the process of a switch interview, which are super, super powerful. There's a company called the rewired group in Detroit. And they have done a lot of documentation on this. I learned 
a lot of the process from them and then through just trial and error in general. But basically you're understanding why a customer switched from what they're currently doing to you. And that you that has to involve some kind of money or trade-off that they did. And that it could be as small as like, why did you stop using Tide brand? And now you're using um, Amazon's laundry detergent. Like, and, and now mm. you continually use that. It could be as small as that. Or why did you switch from, you know, using the intern, hiring an intern or hiring a new person to manage social media to using buzz reports dashboard and, and now using that person in a different capacity. So it's understanding that. And, and the way you, the way, when we did this, it was incredibly enlightening. It was also disheartening because we realized that we, uh, we probably weren't going to be able to figure out another thing to do in there, but this is what we did that I think a lot of people listening could take away. So you get a 45 minute call and you set the stage with, Hey, I just want to talk to you about this purchase that you made. And it has to be within six months, maybe 10 months of when they made the purchase. Cause it needs to be fresh in their mind. And you have a piece of paper in front of you and you have a timeline diagonal across the piece, across the paper. And this is just for your notes. And you ask them, okay, when did you buy the product? And you kind of know that answer already. So you put that dash partly down the page towards the end of the page. And then the whole point in your head, what you're trying to figure out is the two decisions before the two events before that led up to them making those purchases. So the first event is usually around they, when did you start thinking about this problem? What were the, what happened to you then in your life? that made you start considering this problem. And then event two is what made you start actively purchasing this problem, the, the, our software or our solution. And, you know, usually the purchase happened within a couple of days when they decided to actively purchase. And, and, um, and what were your initial, what were your expectations in that moment? So the way, when you learn in the timeline, you're looking at actions and not just what they're saying. So an example for us that we found was, um, so tell me when you bought Buzz Report and they would say, oh, it was March, you know, of, of whatever year. And then I'd be like, great. So when did you start, when did you initially think that you had a problem that we, you know, that you ended up buying us for? And they'll usually only go back like a month and be like, oh, well, I was in a meeting and our, um, our, our boss or the president of the university like said that, hey, we should consider, you know, managing social media better. And I'm like, okay, cool. When was that? And they're like, oh, maybe it was January. So like a couple of months before. And I just write that down on the timeline. And I'm like, cool. Can you just zoom in for a second? Was that, was that a meeting that you were, was it a, a, a weekly meeting? Was it like an email that they sent you? And then they're like, oh, actually, now that you think about it, it was actually an email that they sent me. Um, and I'm like, okay, cool. Can you tell me more about that email? And it seems weird, but you're like zooming in. And what you're trying to figure out is like, you're trying to illuminate their memory around that. And then what we always find is that they're like, actually a week before that, we had gotten an email from the president of the university who said that they were really mad because we had, there were students that were angry about some of the services that we managed on the campus. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Tell me about that. And they're like, well, yeah. So there was a parent who reached out. And so you end up going way, way, way back in the timeline. And you, you realize the things that they were struggling with in, in the context of your solution. And so you real, and so you can break, when you broke those down, we, we went from getting questions. Like if you just asked a customer, Hey, why did you buy us? They would say, we wanted insights around social media. So help mm -hmm. me you know, help me understand um, what our students are saying. And it's like, okay, cool. That's not that helpful because I, I don't know how to iterate from there. But, but when we learn the timeline, there was always an event that was like a big dramatic event. 
Like one of the times, one of the campuses had to shut down the entire campus. Like literally they had to activate the emergency call center because of a comment that was said on social media that was not caught. And they literally shut down the emergency, the, the whole campus. The only time they'd ever done that was from a tornado that had happened. This is the University of Alabama. It was all public. But um, this was all simply from a, a social media post. So after that moment, they're actively trying to figure out how to monitor this. What are they going to do? And then when they saw our solution, they immediately purchased it after that, before we even built the software. So my point is, when you understand that, now, now I'm not looking at it. We're not just an insights platform. We're insurance. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest switch. So now I know that we're insurance for our customers. How do we be insurance at, in another way or be better at being insurance for our customers? Don't try to play the Hootsuite game in our case. We're not trying to be social posting, saving, time saving. We're trying to be, we're literally an insurance product, period. So anyways, it, that, those kind of insights are just massive for a business because I think people operate on the wrong assumptions and they iterate their product in the wrong way. For sure. So, so I'm going to allow our listeners to actually give you permission, hit that pause button, tap that rewind 15, tap it three times, right. And go back and listen to this, get your, get your pen out, get your notebook out. Because I think, I think what we've captured there is really important because we talk a lot about um, user discovery. We talk a lot about talking to your customers, right. But there's, like talking to your customers is the action you're supposed to do. How well you do it is a very different level, right? If, if I talk to a thousand one of my customers and all I'm saying is like, Hey, what's up? Do you like hanging out with me? Probably all of them are going to say yes. Right. If they're in that conversation. Right. And then you're going to go back and, and give your investors and give your partners that validation is like, see, they like us. Right. Right. But that's not exactly what's happening. Right. And so what you've done there is kind of broken it down into how deep you want to investigate things. And I think like, you know, we, when we talk about entrepreneurs, we talk a lot about passion, right? Like, and, and you see this thrown around elsewhere. And, and sometimes I personally, I like, I not scuff at it, but I think, I think passion, the part where it plays is like, imagine how much work it is to do that for every single one of your potential clients, what you just broke down, right? If you're not passionate, if you don't have drive, if you don't have motivation to go do that again and again and again and again, I'm sorry, you're not you're not going to make it, right? Like, and that that's where like the passion comes into play, right? Like, I think a lot of younger entrepreneurs that are listening to this think like, well, I just got to like it a lot, right? Like, I really really like hockey, um, so I'm going to make a startup about hockey, right? It it goes a little bit deeper than that, right? Are you motivated enough to, to go into the trenches like what Adam just described and do that times a thousand, times ten thousand, right? And and like I, I don't know, in my kind of more naive point of view, like I feel like even when you've so-called made it, you've raised your series A, you're you're gone public or whatever, a part of the founder still enjoys trying to figure out those problems for people. I, I find that to be a consistency with founders, personally speaking. I'm so glad to hear you say that. And that because it's it's just a reality. That's why the execution thing we talk about, it's like the idea, I go, oh, cool, you have the idea. That's awesome. Like everyone has an idea, go do it. And you're going to get whacked in the face at one point. And then what do you do at that point? Yeah, for and sure. It's always worth a good research, but I do want to hold caution. Like there are times where you should end it. Like that is, that is crazy to say right now, but there are times, some of you listening are working on something that you should not continue to work on. <laughs> and either you should pivot it or you should stop and you should go work for a company that's figured out. And that same time, that same year that you would spend on that startup, you're going to be able to learn way more 
in, in a, in a fast growing company. That's for some of you. Some of you do not stop, keep doing it. You're on the edge of breakthrough. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I'm referencing a really old book by this point. I don't know if you're, you're reading my mind, but Seth Gooden, the dip. Uh, I don't know if you've read that book before. It's actually really short. So I recommend you guys read it, especially if you feel like you're struggling. And, and so it talks about, um, valleys and, and peaks of, of everything, right? If you're on a project on, on like they, they're trying to learn how to swim, you're trying to learn how to do kayaking, whatever it is to you're building a business, right? There's, there's different times that, that you, that will feel good. And there's different times that will feel bad, right? Like, I think the first time you, you learn how to tread water, that's a huge, you know, up, up climb of, of feelings where, where you feel good about yourself. You feel like you're successful. And then the, maybe the first time you try to swim across the pool and you kind of fail halfway and you have to grab onto the rope and you're like, wow, I'm so stupid. This four-year-old kid next to me is already doing it. And that is like a down point. Right. But what, if you had hindsight, you would be able to see like, okay, if you just practice three more hours, you'd be able to swim not just one lap, but eight laps, right? And and so so the key point that Seth Good and I kind of broke the book here in a spoiler alert is <laughs> you got to find the right time to quit, right? You want to make sure that you're quitting in a spot where you're already dipping. You don't want to quit immediately after you've gone through the hard part, right? When you're so close to reaching the next, you know, checkpoint of success, mm. that's probably not the time to, to quit. Right. But when you've been digging at the bottom of the barrel for, for a month, like maybe it's time to quit. Right. And this is very subjective and I'm not looking for anyone to take this practical advice. Um, but, but I'd say read the book and try and compare your own situation to that. That's a great point. I'm, I'm glad to hear that people are, that he's talking about that. I haven't particularly read that book, of course, yeah. very familiar with him. It's, but old, I, man. yeah, <laughs> that's, that's so, that's so good. And, and it is hard to say, cause, but you know, when there's pull, because you solving for a problem, um, solving a, for a demand side problem and not having any conversations with the customer, they're just not responding to you. There, there's no real movement on like the real pain and it's just talk or, or when you're, when you're getting them to maybe initially respond, but then they don't respond and they completely drop you after that, even though they, you had a zoom call with them about the concept or whatever, and they're so excited, but then they, with their actions, they're not responding and that's consistent definitely question what you're doing because uh, the, the, every time when they're excited, they're going to be responding to you at a much better rate. So judge their actions as an indicator of, you know, is this a real thing? For sure. And to kind of to switch it up a little bit, like you went from, you know, building product, building startups, wearing that badge of honor as, as a startup founder, you went to not only did you take a job, but you went from that into the venture capitalist world. Could you describe kind of what made you pivot to, to that kind of world? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'd always really thought the concept was awesome and, and exciting. And I, uh, for me, the biggest thing that I realized about myself and everyone has to decide this is that my, um, as a founder, I did a bunch of different things. I was so willing to pivot the industry, the customer, all this stuff. And I think that that was a, a fundamental flaw that I absolutely fundamental flaw that I had, but that actually made me good at looking at companies and being in a, being in a network position where I'm analyzing a lot of different companies because, and, and I just got more excitement, like looking at the initial outlook of a, of a, of a company, what makes them good, what makes them fail, where are the problems, that kind of stuff. So I was never as passionate about the thing. Like in any, you see a lot of these found a lot of great founders, like they understand that thing. Like they have been the education person or they've been the, 
the search person they've been the social person like they are just obsessed with that one thing and they've been doing it's a thread throughout their whole career i did not have that i was all over the place so that actually applied w- better to to vc because i was able to look at companies from SaaS to med device to health tech to all, all sorts of other ones because there are fundamental pieces but to be the founder you do you have founder market fit Mm-hmm. That was the question that I asked. And I don't know uh, if you know Rand Fishkin, uh, the founder mm-hmm. of Moz, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty impressive guy. He, I did a podcast with him uh, a year ago and he really like, he helped me with this concept. And he was saying, he was joking with me about, he's like, well, you should have considered the one common thread of all the things you've done is research. You should have considered building a product around startup engagement, you know, un- understanding your customers and research. Cause that's your thread. And I was like, Thank you, Rand. That's really good. So, <laughs> but it's asking that tough question to yourself. You know, what's the common thread? What's your ridiculous passion? And I was never as passionate about higher education. Like I tried and tried and tried and, you know, rolling up your sleeves and rolling up your sleeves, but I was just never like, oh, universities, like this is where it all is. I just couldn't get that. So I'm now fortunately in that role. But as a, as a, when I was in venture, I was able to completely resonate because I do appreciate the pains of being an entrepreneur, the ups, the downs, all that stuff. And I can connect on that level. And so that's where I, I'm super excited to be in that, you know, both then and now. My biggest realizations jumping to that world were, so first of all, if you're outside the Valley, the things that you hear about venture capital are the outliers. The, the Facebook's raising the, you know, back, back in the day to um, Uber, all, all of those guys and girls do not represent the majority of, of what it means to be funded by VC. Like there are thousands of companies that get funded by venture firms and there are thousands that have incredible exits, but these are exits that you might not hear about. And so just remember that the majority of companies that are getting venture investments do not go IPO. And we actually had a joke when we talked to founders, it was, if they say, Hey, I'm just going to take this thing IPO. We were always like, Oh man, like everyone says that. And that like never, ever happens. Like that's so rare. It's, it's not even funny. So usually the, the best founders would say, Hey, I love what I'm doing. I'm excited about it, but here are comparable companies to what I'm doing that got acquired by this company, this company, this company, and here are their exit amounts. So you're kind of in the same way that a real estate agent gives comparables about your house to determine where to set the price. You're showing the investor that, hey, what I'm building is an actual valuable thing. And here are comparables to prove that. And so that's that. That just like, even if you don't have a plan of exiting, I would suggest being able to understand that because they're going to be doing it on you if you're not doing it on them. Uh, so yeah, just a small point. That's That's super fascinating because I don't hear enough entrepreneurs talk about an exit strategy because like they get a lot, especially in those seed stages, early stages, a lot of the talk is about, it's like, well, this is, this is my lifeblood. I'm so passionate about this. I'm going to do this forever and ever. Right. Um, whereas if you throw like, oh yeah, but after five years and you throw a $5 billion check on my table, I'll, I'll leave. Like that kind of ruins that story a little bit. Right. <laughs> that, that's really good. And, and if you, that's another thing, do not say if, if, if VCs smell lifestyle business, you're, you're done. And not only for that thing, like you don't like the conversations over, they're not responding to you. They're not introducing you to people. And cause they all have that story where they've written a check to a company that they thought was going to have something, but they put the money in and they have no way of getting it out. And VCs do not do profit sharing. I heard someone say that like, oh, well, maybe we could just like share part of our profit if we don't exit. It's like that, 
that does not work for the business model. So it always is an exit and, and their job, they, they have been given money and they have to compete with public markets, which is really hard right now because public markets are killing it. So when they call money from their LPs, like the, the timer, the clock starts for them and they're being judged. Like, so they're being judged on how long they held the money and the return that they deliver. So if they could have, if, if, if they called that, if an LP could have put that same amount of money in a public in the public markets and delivered over that same time period much more even if you got a 2x but if the public markets outran that then it's not a good investment for them and they actually failed as a as a vc so just remember if you understand their pressures then you can make better decisions and you can play to that game better but once again not everyone should be going for vc money period 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 but if you are you got to know the game that you're playing Mm-hmm. And and that's that's really important. I think the the fancy term there is opportunity cost, right? Yes. So so for sure, like that, I think that's really important for for entrepreneurs to to think about, right? It's not that you're not a good business, and I think I think that takes that helps you ease off the the pain of rejection as well, right? Mm. Because because some people they they plan to be 10, 20, 30 year businesses, and they want that steady growth, right? And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's just, if you're going after VC money, they're looking for certain metrics over a certain amount of time. Right. And so if it's not the right fit, like, I think, I think people use it as a cliche sometimes when we don't want something, whether it's in a relationship or a business or otherwise we use the term, it's not the right fit. Um, but sometimes it's also just reality. <laughs> That's so good. I'm glad to hear that you're saying that encouraging that. I think, I think of discover work as an interesting hybrid example, which started in Vancouver, um, Henry Shuck, I was fortunate to be able to meet him. He was on a podcast I did a year ago. Now it's Zoom Info public company. They just bought Chorus a couple like this past week. But I'm saying because I don't think that they raised, if I'm not mistaken, they did not raise a lot of money in the beginning, if any, for like the first like five plus years. It was something really interesting. So my point is like they they fought the in the trenches for a long time. And then they had built a really fundamentally good business and they outbeat their competitor who had raised money, uh, Rank Kings. I think they ended up acquiring them or something. I, I could be wrong in some of these details. My point is they didn't raise the traditional amount of money in the beginning when they had a competitor who did and they ended up able to win in the end. And then of course they raised a bunch of private equity money even before they went public and bought up a bunch of other companies, including Zoom Info, which is now, that's the, Henry Shuck is the CEO of that company. Amazing, amazing. And before there's there's a couple of other things of your story that that I want to make sure that I get to, and we might turn this into a part two. I don't know, um, <laughs> but but um, before we, we leave that, like the top VC, I just want to talk a little bit about that for a second. Like you started this podcast, I think now a couple of years ago, you've interviewed a whole bunch of, of VCs. Like first of all, what was your motivation behind starting that, and maybe what have you learned? Yeah, so I only started in January, but I've been able to do a lot of episodes because I keep them shorter. But so the I'm going to talk first as a podcaster and then second as someone who would like be looking to that because I think if anyone if anyone's starting the podcast strategy, that can be incredibly powerful. So before I started the top VC, I've been the host of Growth Marketing Conference podcast. Uh, they're, they're a conference based here. I was also the host of um, one of the startups that one of the iterations that we had the, uh, that podcast. So I probably recorded about 50 to 60 episodes, maybe more personally. And I had learned in one of those times, of course, I did user research just about the content, wanting to know, why do you listen to a podcast? Like what, what are people really looking for? Because I wanted to prioritize our spending on the podcast in the right way. Cause it's really easy to, to get bloated on where you're spending 
your money. And I found that the, re- the reason people, the things in a podcast that make the most difference is a tactical piece of information that can be directly applied. What that could be in the form of a tool or a strategy or a template, that kind of stuff can make just all the difference. Or maybe a strategy that like is, is factual enough that can be really impactful. And of course, it has to be unconventional. Like it can't be something that you could just figure out all the time. So I, I just started focusing on, on le- like asking what's one unconventional thing in whatever podcast I was doing to get that one thing. So it's fast for the, the interviewer. And also it was highlighting like something that went really well. Cause if you only, if they only have one thing to pick then they're going to pick the thing that worked the best and that was out that worked well. So then I, but I, and I, I've, I've focused on decreasing the production quality. So it decreased the cost and I can increase the frequency that way and focusing on just the, the guest quality and then just the conversation quality and like ignoring all the other things, not having the fancy stuff. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I just, in my but in, in the constraint that I wanted to keep it in, it, that was the best way to do it. And then I automate every everything possible. It's all managed in Airtable, and I have a bunch of Zapier automations that automate from scheduling to sharing with the to to sending it to my editor, who I keep to just do a really quick. I, I have a really quick way of doing it. We have all the content in Airtable, and every time we switch something, there's triggers created, there's emails that are created that are sent to the guests so they can share it and all this stuff. And so that I think that is important because it, if you're trying to start a podcast, you're going to start it in three weeks in, you're going to be like, oh man, I can't prioritize this because I got this other thing that's happening. And then you get in a bad situation because you're not able to have that content consistency. So just being realistic about the budget. I started the top VC, like I said, in that passion if I'm going to talk on the entrepreneur side, I started it with the passion of helping showcase the, the, the unconventional insights around closing money. Cause I think that there's too many great founders who don't know the game of raising money, but if, but that's simply the reason that they're not able to close around or they get in a bad situation. They don't, they raise it worse terms or un, unfair terms than what they should. But it, it like, so it's not about trying to take a bad founder and, or a founder who doesn't know what he's doing and try to raise money and scam a VC. It's, it's about founders who understand how to run their business, but just, uh, they're just like fundraising. I do not want to do fundraising. Like this is not <laughs> fun. And I'm just not that great at it. I don't want to play the game, but it's, it's helping those people try to get access. So the simple thing that I do is just talk to VCs and try to get their perspective. And then also talk to entrepreneurs who've been able to do it before. Like I said, the CEO of Dooley um, and talk to another company called uh, Stacker that'll be coming out soon. They've raised from some incredible people and that, that kind of stuff, as well as getting the VC perspective. And I think the biggest thing that I've, the biggest takeaway that I have, if I just had to summarize all the episodes is building an authentic relationship that's aligned with the mission of the investor early on. So it's, you're reaching out to them. Hey, like I'm building something cool in this area that you think is cool. And I see that you think this area is cool because you are started a, a fund around it <laughs> or maybe a community around it as well. So why don't we come together and at least talk about this cool thing that we both think is cool. <laughs> and the conversation goes naturally from there. Maybe it's a year before or even two years before, but you're authentically aligning with someone around a bigger mission. And then the funding piece is a natural thing that could happen based on the trust that's built in that relationship over time. It's amazing. So I'm going to put you on the spot here because it's a little bit like picking your favorite children, but you only get one episode from the past to plug. Which one is it going to be? Got it. So 
David Weekly, and he he's so he has sold multiple companies, one of which he sold to Facebook. And he has this incredible episode that he did. It was a conversational one just like this. And literally the the, the point is stop pitching investors. And when he started saying this, I was like, oh, it would just light bulb started going off in my head. And I was like, that is it. Because he, he described when he got, he was meeting with an investor, a really well-known investor that everyone here would know. And he, the, he was not like, he, he jokes and he's like, I was not just like pitching and here's my pitch and here's this and let me go through my slides. He was, it was a conversation. We, he didn't even have the deck up in the meeting. The deck was sent ahead of time, but it was literally just like, hey, here, here's what I'm working on. I, I think it's, I, I, I obviously have a track record that speaks that if I'm choosing to spend my time on this, <laughs> there's something here. He did have some of, of, of the background. He does acknowledge that, but it was, it was such a conversation. And he, the way he describes the best kinds of pitches are you have, you know, everything about that business. And you basically started off by saying, Hey, like, obviously here's the elevator pitch. Here's what we do, but what, what are your questions? Like, what, what do you, what do you can, and then let them engage with you. And they start saying, Oh my gosh, um, well, I, I'm curious that if you, you know, what about this component? Have you thought about that? And you're like, boom, got it. You go to the appendix because your appendix is stacked. Maybe you have even 70 slides in your appendix and you're like, cool, got a slide for that. And you show it and he's like, yep, we thought about this. Boom, 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 boom. And they're like, whoa, as opposed to showing them 70 slides or even showing them 30 slides or even showing them 20 slides. When they ask a question, you have an answer and you have it cold. That's all they want to know <laughs> that, that they can trust you that you have founder market fit, that you're the person to solve this. And if you're not one of the best two or three people in the world to, to do this thing based on your experience, then I would question doing it just because if, if or I would question doing it and getting VC funding, because those are the kind of exits that they need to be moving towards to be able to deliver the return of their LPs. Awesome. Amazing. So if you guys are watching the YouTube of this, we'll make sure to have that link down below. David Weekly, founder of MedQuarter. Um, talking about stop pitching investors. Um, and so we'll make sure you don't miss that one. It's only 13 minutes long. So I mean, honestly, if you've lasted this far in our episode, you can spend 13 minutes uh, uh, checking David Weekly's episode out. Um, awesome. Before before we let you go, though, like I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your current role now at Zendesk, right? Obviously, I think if you're listening to this, you've heard of Zendesk somewhere. You've probably used Zendesk. Maybe you loved it. Maybe you hated it. Maybe <laughs> it was something in between, right? Like I, I, I personally think like it's really tough to be a startup like Zendesk because people usually go there when they have a problem. So they're not in the best mood for if there was a bug or there was a typo on, on the software, right? Like, so you already kind of have your your backs against the walls the moment you walk in, right? But but tell me a little bit about your your role at, at Zendesk and, and kind of like what kind of drew you to this company? Because I mean, obviously by this point, you could have gone many routes. You could have gone into angel investing. You could have gone you know deeper into VC. You could have built another product, but you chose to kind of join a more established mm. company. Um, wanna, wanna hear a little bit about that. That's a great, that's a great point. And, you know, it just made me realize like just one of their big decisions. So first of all, I lined on the mission. I, the culture is ridiculous. I'm, and I'm, I am, I do not take that lightly. Like Zendesk has an incredible high performance culture, but yet we don't take ourselves too seriously. And that's evidenced by one of our videos. You can search it. Um, WTF is Zendesk. <laughs> and in the, it just like, I, you'll, st you'll laugh, but like one of the points that they say in there is like, so we do customer experience software. Uh, it doesn't sound sexy and it's, it's not, but we're making it by making it better. 
And I was just like, that's awesome. Like we, we've picked something that's not as cool as, as a lot of things, but we have chosen to make it excellent and fun by making it better. And so as a result, you see a lot of people who have are, are now competing with us and uh, there's a bunch of great companies out there doing, you know, a, working in this same space. But the, the reason, I mean, Zendesk is like the gold standard. We started in 2007. We have 160,000 customers, Zoom, Slack, Lyft. Uh, uh, yeah, Zoom, we're talking about here. We're going to be communicating on Slack. Like all these companies started using us, not just as enterprises, but in the early days. So I was just like, okay, that's interesting. And then the other thing, when I was at VC, the problem that I saw just when analyzing companies is that features are becoming commodities. And I was like, like everyone is able, you're able to build things faster than ever. So we're able to keep up and we're, everyone's becoming like really similar in a lot of ways. And you can't just be like, we have this thing that no one else has, like not in three months or not in a month because someone else is going to have it. So we're competing on another level. That level is the entire customer experience. This has been said for a while, but it's evident by Amazon. And I was about to buy my dad a shirt on Amazon for Father's Day back a month ago. And I went, just Googled this specific shirt that I wanted him to have. I go, I find it on another site and I'm almost to the checkout page about to put my credit card in. I start to get anxiety. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't know if this, like, what if it doesn't get delivered on time? What if they don't, what if they don't remove the receipt and it's a gift and I look like an idiot because my dad sees the price in there. What, you know, what if, what if, what if? So then I was like, oh, I'm going to go check Amazon. What if they have, maybe they have the same thing. They had the exact same thing. I select, it's a gift and I know it's going to work out well. Boom, same product. Like literally the products are a commodity, but the experience is why I made the switch. I think that Amazon might've even been a little bit more expensive, which usually they're not, but in that case, I think they were. So even then I was willing to pay for a better experience because I knew what I was going to get end to end. And that's what Zendesk represents to me is that we're helping companies compete on the next level nowadays. Don't compete on features. You compete on the overall experience. That's how the best companies are, are winning. And we've kind of been, we're on the leading edge of figuring that out, which is like an active thing. So that's why I was really excited about being a Zendesk. Yeah, that, that actually reminds me a lot of the, the Zappos experience, right? Like in Canada, we yes. don't talk about Zappos a lot, um, but I know it's a pretty big deal down in the States. It, so true. I was sad to see Tony Shea, their founder who sold to Amazon, but when they he died, I think back in 2020. Yeah, but absolutely. It's a great, that that's an incredible story of that. So yeah. yeah. So that's, and, and you know, once again, we have this incredible startup program. It's a six month free for any fast growing company, basically, if you haven't raised a series B and you're under hundred employees and, and you're trying to build something really cool, that's growing fast. That's, mm -hmm. and, and if, the, and if they come through your channel, then they get six months free. So you, it, yeah, you have to come through someone that we know. And my job is to just build great partnerships and find ways to help people authentically. And that's, that's what I care about. And I'm the first to say, don't use Zendesk or don't use it now. Because that's, that's well, one, that's how you build trust. And two, if we're focusing on the end goal of the customer, then the, the right things will work out. And that's, that's just how we roll. For sure. For sure. And like talking about more like day to day, I know you're involved quite a bit with startups. Like what, what does that look like? Absolutely. It's my favorite part. It's, it's really like brainstorming on, it's not about like, Oh, free software. Like that's great. But like, it's not about that. It's about like, what are you trying to achieve? You're trying to build a unicorn. Awesome. Who else are your competitors? Where are you struggling? How can we make your experience ridiculous? And so we have this platform called Sunshine. And it's basically like, it's, it's a quasi no code platform that you can build an entire customer experience on. So depending on how the customer comes in, you can be sending triggers to them if you're like a physical business or 
um, if you're just a digital business, but it's just like, it's like a, it's like the building blocks of like, imagine any experience that you could do to wow the customer, you can build that on top of there. So that kind of stuff's fun. That's what excites me. It's like talking about the, the high level brainstorming. Like it's not about software. It's about what are you trying to achieve in your business? How are you going to compete in this new world of customer experience being the best in the world? So working with a lot of founders from all the best VCs that you can imagine on, on how to do that and how they can win on us. And if we, if they do that, like we've seen a lot of other cool companies do like the zooms of the world, then uh, good things happen for everyone. Mm -hmm. And then I know, obviously we're talking, but for people that are listening here, like if they want they're like, Hey, we really want to talk to this Adam guy, or they're really interested in the stuff that, that you're talking about with Zendesk. Like, do you guys have, have events? Do you have other forums that, that they can reach out to? Absolutely. So if they're looking to get the actual uh, referral where we evaluate on a company by company basis to get to get into the Zendesk for Startup program, which is more exclusive. Definitely need to come through you, Sam, and have that referral link. We could mm -hmm. we could put that for anyone who's coming through your your program. So we can definitely do that. But uh, besides that, I would go to zendesk.com slash startups. You can see more about the program. That way we have a lot of cool events that we do and we do occasionally inter you know interactions on a partner by partner level like that. We have a great podcast called Sit Down Startup. We've interviewed the former co-founder of Reddit and a bunch of other great companies. So we're always trying to just talk about the, the leading edge of customer experience. The final thing that is really cool that we have is a community uh, that's that's led by my, my good friend and colleague, Greg Geibel. And he just does, it's an incredible, like authentic community of customer experience leaders. So I was on a call uh, about a, a couple months ago with the head of customer experience at Clubhouse. And just hearing in an authentic way, this wasn't like a staged event. It was more like a happy hour and people from the community were coming together. Uh, someone on who ran customer experience at, at um, Calm app was on there and Freshly. And they're, they're like authentic friends sharing stories you know, in, in, from the trenches of customer experience. And that is just gold. Cause that, that's where like, it's just the very, very, very leading edge of the world of, of what it means to deliver this best experience. So that's, that's really one of the biggest benefits of, of the program, in my opinion, and fun things that I do. For sure. And um, well, it's uh, we're right up against the hour now. So, so I'm going to wrap things up before I wrap things up. There's one question that we always ask every single guest. I don't know if you've listened to an episode prior to this, but we ask every single guest this question and let's say the answers are, are interesting to, to, to keep it simple. Um, but the question is, if you could create a dream team of three people, could be dead, could be alive, could be a celebrity, could be a cartoon, could be a historian whatever that you could work with to build a startup, who would you put together and why? Right. So it'd be three people. And of course you. Got it. So first person, Jim Collins, period, period, period. You want <laughs> he, to be great. <laughs> that's good. That's good. <laughs> he, he just represents going to the source of truth, which is data and understanding like the things he's not trying to sway the data. He's just going to just, he's letting the data speak for itself and just holding it up and saying, what, what can we learn here? And that is incredible. He started, I know he works closely with Amazon afterwards at just reading Jeff Bezos's book. They, they pulled him in a lot and that speaks for itself as well. But it's like just going to the core source of data and not trying to get sidetracked with emotions even. Just like, what is this data showing and how do we make the right decision, even if it's going to be really painful and good to great, great by choice. All those are just incredibly helpful um, and, and helpful books. So 
for the next person, um, I would say, I would say Henry Shuck. And <laughs> I, even though I personally have his number and we've talked many times and he was on the podcast, I would say the reason for me is because he represented, he did both things. Like he, he started the company in the beginning in, in a really, and was able to build an incredible moat around something with the data that they had and was able to keep, was able to outbeat people who had raised a lot of money. And yet then he goes and raises a lot of money. And I'm like, what, how is that even possible? But he got the best of both. So he's now can, was able to probably control a lot more of the company that way they're public. And now they're acquiring companies right and left, like they're, you know, a Salesforce equivalent. It's just, it's just amazing. So I, I would love to be able to have just the insights that he has around defendability and moat. They didn't just build a retail brand. They built something that is really, really hard to do. Getting the data that Zoom Info now has is incredibly difficult discover org originally. So um, definitely him. And then let me think of someone else. Um, um, it doesn't yeah, I'm have to be say, a real person either. <laughs> that's good. That's good. You could you, get you Scrooge got, McDuck to handle your savings account. That's really good. That's really good. I, gosh, I, um, I'm trying to think of who the other person would be. It would, because I... I the, I guess in lie of in lieu of me not being able to select an exact person, like I think um, it, it would have to be someone who is not a white male in the U.S. So uh, please yeah, elaborate. Because, <laughs> so I'm not going to even put it. There's a lot of great people in that category, but I, I just want to like I, I want to say this because I think the blind spots that I have just in and where I am, the amount of bless, the amount of things that I have nothing to do with that are on my side that the majority of people in the world do not have and, and are actually fighting, have to fight upstream. Like it's just not even real. And so I, having someone who can have that perspective of, of the reality of like, Hey, you think you did all these things? Like, no, no, no. This was, there was a lot of things, a lot of tailwind that you had that most people don't have. So it, being able to humbly recognize that and also having the diversity of the team. Uh, I, I did a podcast, a really good one um, with a friend, Paul from uh, Brown Venture Venture Group. And he talked about the economic impact of not having diversity. So he's like, yeah, it's obviously bad. Everyone agrees with that. But when you, there's actually a monetary uh, issue and uh, discount that we're all costing, we're, we're all losing money because of not having um diversity so being able to have that is just really good and i i'm just the first to say i the whole movement the black lives movement the past year even though i know it's been going on for a while i'm just the guy who just did not see it i was the guy who like with and i feel so bad but i just um did not realize these things until recently and i'm i'm so sorry all i can do is just hear understand and know how to move forward in it but i just want to recognize and i want to be able to take a stand as someone who who is in a position where it can have some impact and i just want to make an incredible stand on that in the right way so that's where i am sorry i don't have an exact name <laughs> just imagine the tweet we're gonna put out <laughs> you got you got jim collins you got uh henry shock and you got blank but uh but yeah, definitely as a person of color i think i i really appreciate your honesty in, in that respect and and i'm hoping that the the listeners are listening can can resonate with with where where your part passion lies as well um 
So with that being said, that's going to do it for this episode. I think uh, we we went off the charts a, a little bit, to say the least. Um, but but I'm hoping that it's been enjoyable for everybody that's listening here. Gene will be back. It's not There's no rumors or, or anything here. You're not going to have to see this ugly mug too much. Um, I'll still be around, um, but but Gene will be back and we'll we'll have some diversity in this room as well. Um, but, but in the meantime, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, please make sure to do so. We're available on all your, your platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple podcasts. I actually don't know a third podcast app <laughs> off the top of my head, but Hey, if you're using it, like we're probably on it. Right. Um, and, and feel free to, to share this episode with, with a friend. If you found it interesting, if you found it helpful, uh, let us know. Let us know who you want to to us to chat with next. Um, you know, we we didn't find Adam from 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 like a random room somewhere. This was requested, and and it was interesting, and there was mutual interest for him to be here. And and he, you know, he took time out of his schedule to come here and and share a lot of his learnings with us. So we really appreciate you, Adam. One last thing: How can people connect with you, uh, whether it's Twitter, LinkedIn, or otherwise? Adam O'Donnell at LinkedIn, so or Adam O'Donnell at Zendesk, O-D-O, two N's and two L's at Zendesk.com. Two N's and two L's. All right. Thanks, Adam, <laughs> very much. We'll we'll definitely have to have you again on at some time or if you're ever in Vancouver or vice versa, we're doing some stuff in San Fran. Uh, be sure to, to hit you up. But for everybody else, uh, thank you. Good morning, good night, and see you later.